Welcome to the Simple Programmer Podcast. Making complex programming simple and fast. With everything from career advice to philosophy. John Summers will show you everything you need. It's the Simple Hey, what's up? John Sonimus here. Just want to take a moment to tell you about an awesome sponsor we have at Simple Programmer, which is Hire.com. I'm sure you know how frustrating it can be to search for a new job. Pushy recruiters trying to recruit you for jobs you have no interest in, jobs you apply for but you never hear from again, and worst of all, going through a whole interview process only to get a ridiculously lowball offer. Well, Hired.com has solved these problems. Hired flips job searching on its head. It actually puts you in control of the job search by letting you fill out one simple application and then having employers actually apply to hire you. How cool is that? You also get access to your own career coach to help you get your next job. Hired has access to over 4,000 employers with big names like Facebook. Plus, your profile is automatically hidden from current and past employers. Oh, and they pay you to get a job. Anyway, as a Simple Programmer listener, if you use the link Hired.com slash Simple Programmer, you can get double the normal $1,000 hiring bonus and get $2,000 when you find your next job on Hired. Just go to Hired.com slash Simple Programmer to get started. Welcome to the Simple Programmer Podcast, a short mix of career advice, philosophy, and soft skills from successful author and software developer, John Sonmez. Hey, what's up? John Sonmez here from simpleprogrammer.com. And I've got a special interview for you all today. I'm here with Dennis Noble, who is a, a highly respected scientist uh, that is based in the UK, who has had a very, very long and, and fruitful career in, uh, in in the field, has done some, some major firsts in in the in his uh, his area of study, uh, highly respected, uh, published uh, so many so many articles. I was just looking up all all, all the things that he's he's really got uh, a, a lot of lot of credentials. And uh, and I was referred to uh, or Perry Marshall, who who I'd done in an interview with. You can you can check out here. Uh, referred me uh, referred Dennis to me, and I thought it'd be awesome to to interview him and just to get his take on a lot a lot of things. That, uh, that I talk about on on this channel, especially in regards to science, evolution, and, and whatnot. So, uh, so thanks uh, and welcome, Dennis. Very good to be able to join your uh, broadcast, and I'm delighted to talk to you. Awesome. Yeah, I've been looking forward to this um, as I've been researching you. So maybe um, if you, you know, I, I gave a, a brief introduction, but maybe if you want oh. to give a little bit more of an introduction of of who you are. Yes, well, I'm I'm a scientist at Oxford University um, in England, of course. Uh, not uh, there are various Oxfords in the United States, <laughs> but I'm at the original Oxford, dating from about uh, oh about a thousand years ago. However, we're also a university very much at the front of many things, particularly in the biological sciences, which is my own area. Now, I will say roughly speaking what I think I did. I think, first of all, I was the first person to create a computer model of the heart. You know, it explained how you get that beautiful, rhythmic beating away. I worked on the origin of that. 
both to determine what happens experimentally, what happens to proteins, what happens to genes and so on, and how they all interact, but then also to do something which, now remember this goes back to 1960, so oh, over yeah. 50 years ago, I actually used one of the first of the big computers. Now in those days, you didn't have a screen, you had a great big box of valves taking space up in a great big basement and you did massive calculations. My first main achievement was to put all of that together and explain how your heart shows rhythm. And that was the first thing that I did. But that introduced me to something that is very central to, I think, what we might be talking about, which is that in those days, I thought that I was doing very much what biologists were doing in the 1950s, 1960s, 1970s, and even beyond, which was to reduce everything to just a few molecules. All right, uh, yeah. Genes, our selfish genes, if you wish to use that metaphor. But something very interesting happened. Through the mathematics of what I was doing, I came to realize that cannot be true. That, in other words, we as organisms and other organisms too, in some sense control what all of those molecules are doing. It isn't just one way going from the molecules up to you and me, but also down from you and me to constrain those molecules to serve our purposes. And that's a very big switch to, to have taken. So for me, I went all the way from how you might describe this, a simple reductionist view, that everything was molecules, right. to a view that actually organisms have a lot of control over what their molecular components are doing. That's not a popular view in biology, and I've got a lot of critics, of course, too, for saying that, but I think it's true. And I think it can be demonstrated to be true. So if I understand correctly, then what you'd be saying is that the DNA is not necessarily just a blueprint. You Absolutely. Couldn't, you couldn't take it and use it and execute that program and get a get another organism. Even if we figured out how to do that, it's actually a system kind of like if, if I had a, um, what is it called, a, a siphon. And I had... Yes. Once I've closed, yeah. once I've created that siphon, it, that that system is closed. The system and there, that's right. Yes, exactly. And I'll tell you one experiment you could do. Well, it's terribly difficult to do it, but it's it's easy to do it as a thought experiment. Mm. If you could take a cell from your body, and you could extract the DNA from it, you could put it in a petri dish. That's a scientific, you know, little flat dish that scientists like to put things in with a lot of solution. You could put as many nutrients there as you like. You can even add some lipids and all sorts of other stuff. You could keep it for 10,000 years and it would do absolutely nothing. On its right. own, DNA is not alive. It's very right. simple. Okay, so it almost comes to like a chicken and egg. Yes, and there's no answer to that. Right. <laughs> okay. 
And and so you're saying you you discovered this also with the heart because yes. because the reductionist view was okay. Well, the heart works a certain way. If we could construct a heart, it, it would work like this. But you discovered that oh wait a minute, it's actually it's part of that bigger system. And there, there's not an origin. It's like a continuous loop. Like you you can't say this is the beginning and this is the end. They all all the components play. They into interact. And you know, for people who are mathematicians. I can put it in a very precise way. You know, when you've got what are called the differential equations for all of those components, you need something else as well, which is what the mathematicians call the initial and boundary conditions. Now, I know this is a technical way of putting it, but without those, you can't solve the equations. That's a mathematical truth of fundamental importance. And it was actually through mathematics that I came to appreciate the point. What are those initial and boundary conditions? It's you and me, or the environment. Right. Okay. Okay. That 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 makes a little bit more sense to me. It's it's interesting too. I I thought um I was looking online and I saw you know one of your your vocal critics. Uh, I I'm trying to think of what he was. Um, uh, I'm, Possibly I'm, Jerry Coyne. Yeah, Jerry. Jerry. Yes, I, I thought Chicago, lovely man, but he just doesn't know how to keep his mouth shut. <laughs> <laughs> I, but I, it it, um, it resonated with me when I saw the criticism that he made of you because I I love it how how someone can be a genius in one field, right? And they like like you the work you did with the heart that obviously led to the pacemaker. But then as soon as you as soon as you go and disagree with quote modern science in one other area then then they they discredit you by saying oh well you know this person is a great genius in this area but but uh they're just don't know what they're talking about here it's not their field of expertise they're as if people are so <laughs> as if you ever find geniuses who are not uh you know not perfect don't have wisdom along with that you know what i'm saying like it's it's just yeah. funny how I, right. I thought that it's like someone just dismisses everything that you've done and all of your credibility if you if you disagree or along some some point that yes. they think is well established that's absolutely right well i would be the last person to claim to be a genius um i don't know what that even means but what i will say is this there's something very strange about the field of evolutionary biology that produces this extraordinary reaction to anybody who challenges the standard story. Now, you know, science has to be open to challenge. It has to consider, were we right? Have we omitted something? Did we forget something? Or have we got the whole structure of the way in which we think about something like how did the universe uh, arise? How did life arise? How does life manage to go on today? We have to consider such questions. You can't close the argument by saying right. that, as you just put it so brilliantly, which is, you know, this man's moved outside his own field and therefore he knows nothing about what he's talking about. Moreover, it's not even true. I chaired way back in 1976, the first debate on the selfish gene when that book appeared on the scene. Now that book, I mean, it's one of the biggest bestsellers, of course, in science ever. And right. 
uh, Richard Dawkins, whom I know very well, he he's here in Oxford too. So we're both here in Oxford. I have a great <laughs> admiration. <laughs> exactly. I have a great admiration for his brilliant skills at writing. You know, right. the invention of the term the selfish gene was, was absolutely brilliant as a metaphor. Just happens not to be true. You right. see, he says in his book, they, meaning genes, created us body and mind. Well, go back to that DNA put in the Petri dish that I referred to earlier on. I said I could keep it for 10,000 years. It would do absolutely nothing. They created us body and mind. I don't even begin to understand what he means. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a good point. So, so, then your, so then what you would say is that the, it's not the genes themselves, the genes are organized. Because I think, if, you know, I read the selfish gene and, and my understanding of it was, okay, everything is, is, is set up to replicate this gene. It's trying to do everything it can to replicate yeah. itself. But you're saying yeah. that it's not that simple because no. there, there are systems, there are colonies almost of genes that are working together in tandem. You yes. can't just, it's, it, you're breaking it down to too low of a level. It's, that's not the atomic level. Is that, is that's that absolutely right. And moreover, when you ask the question, what enables them to replicate, you know, it's the rest of the cell, it's the rest of the system. Right. It's you and me and our reproductive cells that enable that replication to be accurate. Let me give you just one figure. I, I don't want to be too technical in this because I realize you're broadcasting to a very wide audience, but a, a little bit of technicality is necessary. Now, the error rate in the way in which DNA replicates itself is about one in 10 to the four, that's 10,000 base pairs. Now remember there are three billion of those base pairs. Okay. If that was what happened in your genome and mine every time our cells divided, we wouldn't live. That's millions of changes during each replication. That's impossible, it doesn't work. So what happens? The rest of the system comes in with a whole army of proteins that correct the errors. Now they do it, of course, through that beautiful structure that Watson and Crick worked out way back in 1953, the double helix. Because if you've got two and one's got an error, you can check with the other one and you've got an error checking mechanism. So you can say, okay, there's an error here, let's correct it. And in three stages, the system, not the genome itself, corrects itself to end up with an error of only one in, well, one to the power 10. That means, in other words, in a genome of three billion base pairs, there's hardly a single error. So the accuracy of replication actually is a cell property, not a gene property. Oh, interesting. I see. Because it, it, ha it's, it, it requires the rest of the cell in order for it that. It requires to... the rest of the cell. Exactly so. Yes, precisely. So I take issue with the idea that there's a simple replicator there, which just uses the vehicle, which is you and me, <laughs> to be transmitted. So what we're really doing is transmitting our genes down the generations. Well, I like the metaphor, of course I do, and I get excited about it. I read The Selfish Gene and was excited about it too, but it doesn't work. Right. <laughs> Without you and me, <laughs> there would be no replication. It's very simple. 
Right, right, and it also doesn't explain the the complex interactions where, where I think that it's it's. I mean, we even just. I mean, everything almost scales up, right? It's like, why do humans cooperate when we should? When game theory says we should, we should not cooperate in many situations, right? It's it's like we're there has to be something more if it, it's not just replicating the gene because there's a lot of functions. There's a lot else besides, exactly so, which is all inherited, of course, because we don't, uh, I mean, the, the sperm and the egg are not just DNA. <laughs> uh, right. The egg particularly, very obviously so, but even the sperm also is, is carrying more than just DNA. It's a complete cell. And a cell is an extraordinarily complex system. Even the tiniest cells uh, are very complex. Even a bacterium is very complex. So all of that gets inherited in addition to the DNA. But you've just, you've just indicated something that I like very much, which is I think you are hinting at the fact that organisms cooperate. Right, they exactly. They're not just selfish. Now, we can prove that. If you study dogs, and wolves and monkeys, so I'm going to leave humans out of it for the moment, you find something very interesting. The organisms themselves, the monkeys, the dogs or the wolves, I, I include the wolves because that means this is not a matter of domestication because the wolves are wild. They're able to detect and be sensitive to the animals in their community that don't play the game, who right. cheat, and who try to be selfish, and they exclude them. Right. So the cooperativity comes from the organisms themselves who like, as you and I do, to be with people we can cooperate with. But the interesting thing is that animals can also do that. It isn't just us that can form cooperative groups of like-minded people and to exclude people who are disruptive and don't cooperate with us, animals can do it too. That arose during evolution, even before the development of humans. Right, okay. Yeah, that, that it's interesting then that, that there, I think, I don't think very many people would argue against that because it's obvious that this that groups often often participate for the better of the group not for the individual Indeed. i mean yes, we do it as, that leads yeah. but that leads to a very important point which the reductive view of evolution tends to ignore which is that there is selection at the level of the group and right. cooperativity can be selected for it isn't therefore just a matter of selfish genes perhaps looking at what People sometimes describe as being, well, just, you know, I'll, I, I will sacrifice myself for my children or for maybe my cousins and, uh, you know, close kin. But we all know that it isn't quite like that. <laughs> we right. are also prepared to sacrifice ourselves or our interests to some degree for others that we cooperate with. So I'm arguing that actually the evolutionary process shows many examples of cooperation uh, in addition to, because I'm not denying that exists, in addition to uh, nature red in tooth and claw, which of course is the uh, usual way in which people describe it. Right. Yeah, and, uh, yeah I, I think we see, I mean, one instance I was thinking of that was that we vote or that we recycle because 
game theory would say don't ever vote or recycle it doesn't make any sense you know but but because there's no bad i mean you're sacrificing your time and there's really no, no benefit for you value. no that's right yes yes exactly so but, and i'm saying that animals also show that behavior we can see in other words the origins of some of our social behavior in other animals including the ones that i mentioned um monkeys dogs wolves but you can also go down quite a lot further actually but that gets very technical and i, I think i've already illustrated that it's not a phenomenon that is just unique to humans right exactly okay and yeah. and just to be clear so everyone watching knows we're not saying and i and you know just tell me if i'm not if i'm saying this incorrectly but yes i, I know i'm not saying I, I don't think you're saying that evolution isn't true that doesn't exist that evolution doesn't exist we're, we're just saying that that there's a very close-minded way of viewing evolution exactly and that's and the the evidence yes. is showing that that's not true but people are desperately clinging on to this and yes. uh, and the other side of the story is it doesn't get out quite as much as, as it should be yes you, you you put your finger on a very important point there because those of us who are saying as i do very much in the books that i write i've written two major books on this a little one about 10 years ago called the music of life and a very recent one called dance to the tune of life and both of those titles give an idea of the metaphor i'm using which illustrates that life is a process just like music like dance um, and i see the genes as being controlled just like the, the puppets on a string <laughs> right <laughs> you and i in other words the organisms control it but you you put a very Im important point there which is that um to question the standard theory of evolution is not to question that evolution has happened the right. evidence for that is absolutely overwhelming i find it very difficult to understand uh, people who uh, will say well actually <laughs> we were all created about four thousand years ago uh, I mean, I know that many people do genuinely and honestly believe that. I respect them, but I also don't see how they can be possibly looking at the clear experimental evidence. But the, the important point here is that people like me who challenge the standard theory are not questioning the process that has occurred historically of evolution, question the mechanisms by which it happened. Right. And the standard story will say, well, there's only one mechanism. There's a kind of um, there's a kind of fruit machine there. You know, it's throwing up. I don't know whether Americans still use fruit machines. The the old-fashioned machine where you 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 pull a lever and a lot of things would turn around and maybe get three lemons and you'd be very lucky and get oh, some yeah. money back. Or you and you got one lemon, a grapefruit, and something else. Okay, all of this is random. It's a, it's a way of producing, of course, random variation. And the standard evolutionary theory is that's all there was, random variation in our genes, followed by the process of selection of those organisms that turn out to be fitter than those that don't manage to survive or reproduce as well. Now, nobody, certainly not me, is denying that that process occurs what we say is, but there are other processes as well. And there are many of them. 
There are processes, believe it or not, there are processes in which in the past, going back through the millions and billions of years, in which organisms have actually come together, not only to cooperate, that's actually well known, that organisms of totally different species, look at the corals, they are cooperation between one kind of organism and the algae which give them colour. But it can go even further. It's a marvellous scientist called Lynn Margulis, she was an American, working at the University of Massachusetts in Amherst, and she championed the idea that all the energy producing bits in our cells, they're called, just to give a technical term now, they're called mitochondria. Think of them as the energy factories, they're producing the energy in our cells. Now those all arose from <clears throat> the fusion between one bacterium and another kind of unicellular organism. That's proven. Right. She was laughed at. I could go through many other examples where people have shown other mechanisms by which evolutionary change has occurred and who have been dismissed or even ridiculed uh, for what they have produced as I think of as groundbreaking work. You know, the move from a single cell that was more or less structureless, which is what happened <clears throat> before the fusion of a bacterium with another kind of cell to produce the kinds of cells that you and I have in our bodies, that is an absolutely fundamental step in evolution. And it's not through random mutation followed by natural selection. That's right, the key. Right. And as I said, I could give you four or five other examples of processes which go outside the standard theory. That's what I uh, describe, of course, in my books, um, go outside the standard theory to say the standard theory is not completely wrong, it's just it's not sufficient. There are many other mechanisms as well that have contributed <clears throat> over the years to the evolutionary process. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That makes, that makes a lot of sense, especially where, you know, I think, I think both on both sides, it gets tripped up in, in the, the steps where you, where you can't reduce something further and there's no way to get from here to there. It, there has to be a bigger change, right? It, it's not, there's not an That's incremental right. change. So, so like you said, where the, if the mitochondria merge these two bacteria merge then all of a sudden you have a much more complex system but you didn't exactly. have to get there step by step because yeah. there is individual steps that combined and we see that all the time in 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 when companies merge <laughs> right? so. actually there's a lot you're absolutely right there's a lot in common between thinking in economics and management and evolutionary biology i'm actually involved in a project here in oxford today that looks at that comparison between the way in which people look at mergers and interactions between corporations and the way in which people model the evolutionary process the equations are very similar makes sense i mean it makes sense yeah. from the just from what i know of of there being it's almost the universe is created with principles that that transcend everything it seems to me that that you when you find some of these things i mean they're very hard to to quantify into words but 
They, yeah. You see them everywhere. You see the patterns, emer emergent systems, things like this. And so I, I think it's just, it's, it's interesting. It's always been interesting to me that we have all these complex systems. I mean, even just, just the way an ant or bee colony works. Yet when yeah. we go down to the low level, everyone just insists so much on this on DNA replication and random mutation. And that's yeah. uh, in natural well, selection. If that was which, all there was, yeah. you'd have great difficulty explaining what we're doing at the moment, which is talking to each other. Right, right. In a rational and socially interactive way. You see, when I talk to some of my more reductionist colleagues about this kind of question, because, for example, in my most recent book, Dance to the Tune of Life, I actually say organisms have got agency. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't mean just us, it means other organisms too. And what they will say uh, to me when I say, well, you know, I clearly have agency because I intended to write that book <laughs> and right. Richard Dawkins intended to write The Selfish Gene. You know, they will sometimes say to me, well, Dennis, you thought you intended to do it. <laughs> <laughs> now, actually, I have great difficulty uh, even understanding what that phrase means. Maybe now I think that once I thought that I intended to do it, you know, it becomes a sort of regress that goes on indefinitely. But, but, but it kind of um, proves your point because that would be a system that has no beginning or end, right? Yeah, it's, that, uh, that, that's absolutely right. No, I think it's, it, it is undeniable, therefore, that you and I have agency and all of our human colleagues have agency. But you see, I think the monkey has agency. I think the dog has agency too. And right. you can see that. Uh, and what I mentioned earlier on when I referred to uh, organisms like that, non-humans, but nevertheless showing the processes of being able to distinguish somebody who is favorable to a group and not favorable to group and therefore selecting themselves for a group which then goes on to be selected for in the evolutionary process. Now, I think that leads to something very important, which means that um, there is purpose in life. Right, right. The purpose comes from the organisms themselves in the interaction with their environment. Now, that has huge implications because the standard story, and particularly the story favored by the gene reductionist is that well essentially we're just a product of our molecules <laughs> i turn that on our head and yeah. i say well no actually our molecules are constrained by us they're right. not free to do what they want <laughs> well they don't know how they could how could you say a molecule could know what it wants <laughs> obviously that's that's just a way of speaking but they are constrained by us and so the organism has agency and purpose. Now, that is something that many biologists and very many chemists and physicists will resist very strongly indeed. They will say to me, Dennis, there's no purpose in life. 
I mean, we just happenstances. We just happened. <laughs> but they say that. They say that. Every person who I've talked to that has said that doesn't live that because they say right. it. But if you live oh. that, that would mean that every single chance that you got to steal, to murder someone yeah. and not get caught, to do whatever would benefit you, as long as you didn't get caught and you had a reasonable chance. And we, we all have had chances in life where we could do something really bad and not get yeah. caught. But we still have a conscience. We still feel guilty. There, like, if, if someone That's really right. believed what what they're yeah. saying to believe, they would be the most right. vile human being. You would not be able to trust them with your back turned for a second. But but people yeah, generally right. don't live that way. That's that profess yeah. to live that way. No, exactly right. So, what that means is that what we're talking about here has very major implications. Yes. For social life for our moral and legal structures. How can we blame somebody legally in a court of law if we really think they couldn't do other than what they did? Right. <laughs> I mean, you know, if you really have no control <laughs> over what you do. Now, we know, of course, that there are sad cases where somebody is so unwell that their nervous system is so disturbed that that is actually true. They can't help what they do. And that leads me to a very important point here. That means in turn that because we can understand that that is sometimes the case, we also know that it can't usually be the case. Right, right. Because those people, sad, but they are exceptions. They're not the rule. Right. And that has huge implications, I think, for the way in which we think of society and how we all organize ourselves, including, of course, our legal and ethical systems. Right, right. Uh, yeah. I'll take the view, you see, that, that actually the big debates that are occurring now in evolutionary biology have got huge implications, way, way beyond biology. Right, right. That makes sense. I think one of the things, you know, along with that, that, that I find interesting, too, is that it's, uh, you know, what, if what, what we're saying is true, if we are not just a product of chemical interactions, and we have, we actually have agency, we actually have control, then mm -hmm. we, we don't know what the mechanism of that control, it's just like that exercise of, it almost goes into Eastern philosophy of, of who am, who's the thinker thinking about thinking, right? Can I observe myself? And we can go to how many levels of recursion there, but, but science, a, a lot of scientists don't want to accept, we don't know, as in, right. we're never gonna know the answer to that probably, but, but you sort of leave a, a huge chunk of science uh, out if you're not willing to accept that some things you may never know the answer to or be able to prove. Yes, I go along with that absolutely. In fact, I, I go along with it so much that I, what I say in my own writing is that there are questions to which we possibly can never have an answer. Now, I say possibly because, of course, there's a long history of people saying this is impossible, science can right. never do this, and so on. We all know that some of those statements have been shown to be absurd. You know, one of the greatest physicists of the uh, 19th century, Kelvin, actually said 
he couldn't see how anybody could possibly produce a machine that could fly. Right, yeah. <laughs> a, a machine that was heavier than air that <laughs> could fly. And of course, within a few years, the Wright brothers had done it. And a lovely example, which I, I like immensely, was the um, philosopher, or we could call him a scientist too, in the 19th century, Auguste Comte, a French philosopher who said, thinking about it, you see, well, we'll never know anything about the chemistry of the stars. Of course, right. poor man, he didn't know about quantum mechanics. He didn't know that that gives you the possibility of detecting a spectrum. And a spectrum tells you what chemicals are in the light or in what gave rise to the light that comes from the star. So you can actually work out what chemicals were in the star. Moreover, you can even show that they were the chemicals formed, of course, by fusion in the stars that give rise to the molecules that enable us to exist. So we are stardust. And all of that occurs in a way that Kant couldn't even begin to see because he thought any light from the stars would look just the same. However, what I'm also saying is that I think there is nevertheless a limit which we find very difficult to go beyond. Let, let's look at it in terms of the origin of the universe. Right. We have these models, of course, which people have of the expanding universe and how it formed from what people call the Big Bang. All that is beautifully uh, formulated in sets of equations which enable us to reproduce the behavior of our organ of our universe from roughly 13 and a half billion years ago to now. However, you have to adjust in the equations you use for that, you have to adjust the constants in those equations to a very fine degree. Right. The lovely book um, that Martin Rees, who is an astronomer here in England, wrote about 20 years ago. I think it's called Just Six Numbers of the Universe, something like that. I don't remember the exact title, Just Six Numbers. And what he says is, you know, the, the big puzzle is, why are those numbers what they are? Because if they weren't, even by modest degrees, this universe would not exist, we would not exist. Right. Now, one answer to that would be to say, well, we wouldn't be here contemplating it if that wasn't the case. Now, that's obviously true. <laughs> here we are contemplating it, so it must be the case. But the trouble is, we can't explain those numbers. Right. And so, now, who knows whether it ever be possible to produce a theory in science that does explain those numbers. I, I myself think that there are boundaries across which we might not ever be able to go because what you'd have to do to answer the question, what were those numbers that helped to ensure that this universe exists? You'd have to go back beyond the Big Bang. We have absolutely no idea how to do that. Right. Exactly. <laughs> People invent theories of multiple universes, billions of universes, but we can't see them, we can't record from them. Again, I'm saying I don't know um, whether anybody ever will be able to produce a theory that would be testable, that would go beyond uh, the origin of the Big Bang. 
But I am saying that at the moment we're very puzzled. And I think not to admit that is strange. And it requires a certain humility right. to say, okay, we've achieved an enormous amount in science. We can understand huge amounts that our predecessors could never have imagined understanding. Nevertheless, we've got some very big questions that still remain and possibly always will. Right. Yeah, I always, I always talk about that. The, the problem with ignorance is by virtue of, of itself, you can't know it. <laughs> you, when you're well, ignorant, you can't know you're ignorant. You so, can't know what you don't know. <laughs> right. And you, and you can't even detect it. You can't even detect it in the slightest, right? If you had the wisdom or the knowledge, you would know yes. of your ignorance, but you wouldn't be ignorant. So uh, it's... Ignorant. That's absolutely right. Yes. Yes. I think that gets it perfectly right. Yes. But that means, of course, that in addition to what we were talking about earlier on, with immense social ethical and legal implications and possibly also of course economic and similar implications of what is going on in the debates about the nature of biology there are also deep philosophical issues right. and i in my books i frankly recognize that many of my science colleagues will say dennis philosophy is a subject that got left behind hundreds of years ago hasn't produced anything new in absolutely hundreds of years now one says that's absolutely true philosophy is not about discovering new facts that's science but it is about understanding how we understand what we have found and that right. is what i would call philosophy my some of my colleagues say well dennis you're just a thinker you're not a philosopher i don't know the difference i think anybody who thinks is a philosopher I, I agree, especially if they put it into practice. It's interesting how the roots of science came from philosophy. I mean, exactly so. And then we've left them behind, and now philosophy just means logic, and and science is 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 science is proven. And uh, but but the two of them together, I think, need to they need to be rejoined again because as we start to tackle these harder and harder questions, I, I, that, I, to me, that's the only way. Yes, that is very strongly what I argue in the latest of my books. Dance to the Tune of Life says right at the beginning that you cannot separate philosophy from science. Right. And largely because there are conceptual issues that precede what you think you will study. I, I'm looking at you at the moment in the screen here. Um, but my ability as a human to recognize that you are also a human and to see what I see with my eyes is not just like a camera taking right. a picture. It's also an active process from my nervous system capable of resolving what I see and making sense of it. And I wouldn't be able to do that if I didn't have the, well, Kant, one of the biggest philosophers uh, on this kind of question, put it very well when he said, you know, there have to be metaphysical assumptions behind what you do in science. Right. I think that's the best way to sum it up. And those metaphysical assumptions, of course, are philosophical choices you make. They may be wrong, but right. you've got to have them. Otherwise, you wouldn't see what I'm seeing at the moment. 
Right. Exactly. Yeah. That. Yeah. That's very, very true. It's it's interesting too. I mean, just just the if you look at at history, the I can't remember the gentleman's name who invented or who discovered didn't invent but radio waves, and they thought he was crazy, and they <laughs> went to lock him up. And uh, it, the guy yeah. that uh, the plate te tectonic plate theory, and again, oh, that, that was also yes. Uh, I mean, it isn't only evolutionary biology that has received a lot of ridicule when people have uh, departed from the standard story. You're quite right, the tectonic plate theory was thought to be absolutely crazy. And yet when we look at a globe, how could you possibly not imagine that South America fits into Africa? Right. <laughs> In a way, it's so damned obvious. Now, of course, that's just one part of the system that looks damned obvious, and of course, they don't all fit neatly because many things have happened since they moved apart. But you know, you, you're quite right. That's a very good example of where an idea in science was at one stage ridiculed as being totally out of the out of the order of things and not conceivable. And, and, there and are many examples of that. It seems to me too that today it's got almost gotten worse with the communication. Almost, you know, when I read an article on CNN or, or a news site, they state things that are are assumed as fact, and and then they use credibility. They say, well, because this famous scientist says this, or everyone knows this, so this must be true. And so I I feel like as a lot of the youth today just accepts a lot of things. They don't challenge things. They don't, you know, I I get a lot of flack on this channel when I say. I don't believe in dark matter. I like, I know that there's, but if you can't tell me what it is, I'm going to say that we just filled in a gap in an equation and, and said that there must be dark matter and dark energy. Maybe it works. Maybe it's true, but maybe it's totally something completely different. And, and I think about like, um, if we were, if, if a day, if a day were millions of years, let's say a day were billions of years long and we had only lived at nighttime when daytime came around, we would have no idea. I mean, the whole universe, for all we know, a billion years ago could have been like a, a, a switch between, like a sine wave, a switch between night and day. And all the laws of physics and everything could be completely, could have been completely different a billion years ago. I mean, I mean, I know those are crazy things, but it, I, I just like, I think about these things. And, and when I see these things, sometimes people look at me like I, like I just must be an ignorant fool, but I, I wish more people would question well, you know, yes. and you know, feel free to disagree with me, but I, I feel like we've really lost this curiosity. In, in quite, we just trust authorities, and uh, in, in, in history has proven authorities are wrong. Yes, curiosity is fundamental to science. That's absolutely right. Um, now, obviously, there's speculation that has almost no basis. <laughs> Right. any kind of argument, and we are all familiar uh, with that kind of speculation. Uh, and the speculation, which is perfectly reasonable, and that's the word I think I would use, in the light of what we already know, and most importantly, in the light of what we don't know. You referred to the dark matter theory. It's perfectly reasonable to ask the question, have we really got our theories right? lead us to think there must be dark matter. Maybe there's another way of thinking about the universe that wouldn't need that, just as there might be another way of thinking about the universe that wouldn't need those six numbers to be so accurately um, 
uh, adjusted to enable us to exist. So I think that challenging is part of the function uh, of scientific investigation. It should be open to challenge. And yet there's a tendency, isn't there, in science, but also in other walks of life for um, a closed view to develop, which is regarded as the consensus. And I think the people who criticize me over evolutionary biology are essentially saying, well, he's not one of us. <laughs> he's, right. he's, not, he's not part of the, well, can I use this word? He's not part of our temple. He's not part of our religion. Now, they wouldn't right. use that word, of course. Right. <laughs> And even though it is a religion <laughs> and i'm not using it in 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 the usual sense of course i'm using it in the sense of the presuppositions that we base our worldview on and right. which people tend to want to get agreement on uh, right. at all costs and then form what i would close would regard as being a kind of closed group that says we've got the story we've got it right 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 exactly it's 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 interesting how the those those associations form and and how tightly that they they hold on to that i wonder what that is so is it just the, the not knowing it's it's some i guess it's hard for us to say i don't know or to, to not have an answer well i've got a theory but i i, I hesitate to put this idea to an American audience, but let me do the best I can. I come to the United States very often, incidentally. I even work sometimes in the United States. And I think it comes down to the whole history of the arguments between creationists, intelligent design people, and the evolutionary biologists. And I think the situation's become polarized. Mm -hmm. Yes. That's unfortunate. Um, it's as though uh, both sides are very determined to defend their position at all costs, even including, as it were, criticizing people who dissent from them, even if they're in no way giving any, any quarter to what they would regard as the other side. I mean, right. obviously, if you're having arguments with people thought that the world um, uh, was created 4,004 years ago, or whatever the number is, um, clearly those who on that side say, well, it was created 4,000 odd years ago, and those on the other side say, but no, it's extremely old and goes back billions of years, um, clearly the people who think about the standard evolutionary theory are not the only ones who hold the view that it goes back billions of years. Right. It's, it's very obvious. There are many ways in which you can think about the process that occurred over those billions of years. Um, and in both cases, you're challenging those who say, no, it was only formed about 4,000 years ago. And I want to emphasize what I said earlier on. I perfectly well respect those who think on their own view that it was 4,000 odd years ago that the earth was formed. It's just that I don't think the evidence stacks up to, uh, to, to, to prove them right. But what I find very strange is 
the reaction of standard evolutionary biologists who think when somebody like me challenges their particular theory about how it all happened, that I'm somehow giving quarter, is that the right word? In sure, American yeah. English? You know, giving credence, that would be the word, wouldn't it? To what they would regard as the other side. I think to some extent it's this polarization that is unfortunate. Sure. Yeah, I um, it's interesting. One of my favorite books is uh, by John Stuart Mill's uh, on liberty. Yes, and, very and lovely think, book. Yeah, that is such a. I feel like people need to read that book again because because that's. I mean, it's it's essentially the, the argument that you're saying is it's. Yes. It doesn't matter if it's a popular viewpoint. All all viewpoints have to be defensible, and we have to not that's shut that's down that. people and say, "Well, we have already established this, so so get out of here. Yeah. Uh, you don't yeah. know what you're talking about." We have to continually defend a defensible point, otherwise, it's it's not defensible. And exactly and so. and how many times in history does it flip and become wrong? Uh, yeah. Even though the majority, even though it was consensus, and then sometimes we have to dig up the foundation again and say, "Oh, well, I guess we we're wrong with our consensus." Yes, that's right. And I, I also hold the view, you see, that nearly all theories in biology are wrong. Right. <laughs> I have to, I have to qualify that. What I mean by that is that they're all approximations to the truth because Correct. Yeah. it's so damn complex that none of us has got. A complete explanation uh, of what we observe. So all theories are, are approximations to the truth. Um, this one I like because one of the things that Jerry Coyne says about me is, well, all his theories are wrong. Or <laughs> <laughs> right. my reply to that is, well, yes, I think I can live with that because all theories are actually <laughs> wrong. Right. I mean, the sense that they're all but of course, that's not what he means. We know that. <laughs> um, the serious point, though, here is that um, we get to approximations of the truth about ourselves and about the big questions in life and the universe. And we always have to recognize in a rather more humble way than I'm afraid many scientists tend to think that our knowledge as you said earlier on, needs to be defended. Right. And that's a process. It is never fi never finished. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's really interesting about the approximations too, because I think, I mean, even just we, we recognize this, like between Newtonian physics and quantum physics, they yeah. predict different, they're totally, you know, one of them has to be wrong or both of them have to be wrong. They're, I mean, they're approximations, but Newtonian physics, physics is good enough to land us a, a mars rover at an exact spot on, you know on so it, yes. it's yes. the approximation is good enough but if we wanted to go further than that we'd probably yeah. need a better that that approximation might not be good enough for something more yeah. technical than exactly. that if we wanted to land yeah. a rover on a on a pinhead that probably wouldn't yeah. work yes indeed and you know if people wanted eventually to try to send uh, objects at speeds approaching large fractions of the speed of light, you would be getting into relativistic effects. And of course, there are people who think that's the only way we will ever communicate or send objects to the distant stars outside our own solar system. So you're, you're absolutely right. Newtonian physics works within a certain range of conditions to such a degree of accuracy, you hardly need to bother about relativistic effects. But we know 
You know, look at what Hubble found when it was that's that beautiful telescope up there in the sky that can uh, get images that are not affected by the haziness of the atmosphere of the Earth. So it's got crystal clear view. And there's one image that I think is simply fantastic. It looks deep into the universe through our own galaxy, through an area which is um, fairly dark, only a few stars in the sky. And what does it find? It finds an extraordinary structure, which is that there must be a bluish light galaxy or set of galaxies at an extremely far distance away from a somewhat differently colored galaxy or group of galaxies between that blue one and us. And what does it see? It sees the very distant galaxy not as a dot, as a little thing that is pinpoint, it sees it as a ring. Yeah. This is predicted, of course, by the gravitational lensing effect of, 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 of general relativity. You can see it in what Hubble has described. And of course, there's no way in which you could uh, understand that without using relativistic um, theories of the kind that Einstein uh, developed. So, yes, certain theories are very good approximations in certain circumstances, and Newtonian mechanics is in that situation. Uh, but to think that we've, through that, understood everything, as Laplace thought back in the 19th century, is, is clearly wrong. Right, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I wish I wish more people understood understood that today. I feel like a, a, we're doing somewhat of a disservice to our young people by by not teaching them to think critically and, and to understand that that that's true. Right. Yes. But, well, I, I thank thank you, Dennis. I, this has been great conversation. I I've definitely I got a lot of it. I hope I hope that that everyone listening does as well. Very and nice. I hope that they check out your books uh, yes. one, one more time. So it was. Um, yes. Well, the two books that are really relevant, The Music of Life was about 10 years ago, okay. 2006. That's a little paperback, cost nothing. Um, the cost of a cup of coffee. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> um, the latest one, Dance to the Tune of Life, has only just recently come out. Um, that also doesn't cost very much. These, uh, these are books that anyone can access and they're written in a very general way for the general reader, even though they go into some fairly, rather like our conversation today, into some fairly deep philosophical and scientific questions, asking very fundamental questions about life and the universe. Do we really have purpose? Is the universe itself? in any sense purposeful right. uh, one that's one of the sets of questions that i ask but i ask those questions as a scientist and not just speculating beyond beyond what i think the science can show okay yeah yeah i, I definitely i have to read i'm definitely going to read the book especially now i'm, I'm very very curious to, to hear what you have to say any anytime i, I love the idea of combining philosophy and science I, like i said I, that's I what like i do that's 
great. I, I'm I'm very very glad that uh, to have been introduced to you and to have the chance to interview. It's it's honestly been been an honor, and uh, and uh, yeah, I look forward to to seeing uh, what else uh, what else you you produce and uh, and yeah, th thank you very much. Well, thank you very much. It's been a great pleasure to talk to you. Okay, take care. Okay then. Bye bye. Bye. Hey, what's up? John here. Just wanted to make sure you aren't missing out. Only about half the content I put out is on this podcast. This podcast is created mostly from the audio from the YouTube videos I put out daily. When you get a chance, head on over to youtube.com forward slash simple programmer and click the subscribe button to get access to two to three new videos every day. Even if you prefer the audio format, make sure you subscribe at youtube.com forward slash simple programmer so you can check out what you might be missing.